A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us in the section we're reading. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. This is my third time recording this intro because Crossland's bullshit computer decided to crash on us last time. So, uh, picking up back where we left off. Let's go, Crossland. <laughs> yeah, so uh, today we'll be discussing chapters 29 to 34, the remainder of part three gold. It's like 40 pages, but so fucking much happens. It's it's so good. It's, yeah. And uh, we kind of decided to make a little bit of a theme out of the drinks based on this chapter. There's a lot of bloodshed, dude. Yeah, this chapter is particularly violent for the book, obviously. And uh, we also have to start off here a shot. Uh, so, you know, obviously we're going to talk about what we're drinking, but first we're going to pour one out for uh, for all the people who died. What are uh, what are you shooting? I've got some uh, Kilo Kai rum, a dark rum from Curacao. One of my favorites. One of my favorite dark rums. Nice. And I am shooting some bullet rye. Very nice. <laughs> which is I've got I've got that in my cocktail, which I'll talk about after this. Same. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Cheers. Cheers. Cool. I recently got one of those really like giant mouse pads that cover basically my entire desk. Mm-hmm. I've got room for everything on here, including my mouse for my uh, work computer <laughs> and my keyboard and my regular mouse, among other things. Clinking my shot glass on the uh, on the mouse pad definitely doesn't give the same satisfying thump as uh, just the hard top desk does. <laughs> so I, I got to give myself one of those. Uh, that probably comes through in the audio. It's really nice. Like they're real, real comfortable. For sure. What are you drinking? I am having a whiskey seven. Um, so kind of our, our theme for the day was going with something red for all the blood. So we'd kind of discuss that shed. It's more brown, but, you know, it's it's a little bit of dirt in it, you know. Uh, so a whiskey seven, uh, basically it's two ounces of bullet rye, a mini seven up can and then a lime and some icy boys. If uh, if you like that. <laughs> all right. Um, you sent me a picture of it earlier. I like that you got it, uh, sort of separated. I'm assuming you probably mixed it together after the picture was taken, but looks really good. Oh yeah. It looks super cool separated, but yeah, I did, I did stir it all together for the afterwards to drink it. Unlike you, I actually made a red cocktail. It also uses bullet rye, uh, but it is one of my all time favorite cocktails. It is a New York sour. So it's a whiskey sour with a float of red wine on top. So 0.75 ounces of simple syrup, an ounce of lemon juice, um, two ounces of bullet rye, and then about an ounce of red wine floated on top. And then a lime wedge, not lime, lemon wedge for the garnish on the on the rim. But just kind of that blood red floating right on top of the yellow. Pretty, pretty cocktail, but also delicious. Yeah, it looks awesome. It's going to look awesome on the top shelf. You can check out all of our drinks too historically on our website under the little tab called the top shelf. It's 
a great resource for everything that we're drinking and you can check it all out there. What are, what are you uh, chasing with? Um, so I have a beer from Equilibrium Brewing Company called uh, MC Squared. It's a double IPA, clocking in at about 8%. Let's see. So that's uh, Middletown, New York. I don't know how far away that is from New York City, but... It's a place. It's a place. It doesn't tell me what hops they use in it, but it's pretty can. Kind of a psychedelic Albert Einstein. Yeah, it looks like it's just a little bit north of what's considered, um, you know, like the borough-ish area plus Yonkers. It's like two-ish counties north. So it's a it's a waste, but what do you have following this up? I'm following up uh, my whiskey seven with a pretty pumpkin from Wilmington Brewery Company. It's a pumpkin ale brewed with they claim on the label brewed with a hundred pumpkin pies from Apple Annie's Bake Shop. So I'm sure hundred pumpkin pie. They put whole pumpkin Dude, pies in there. This is actually the best pumpkin beer I've ever had. It is right. so tasty. I mean, that's not that's not a super hard. Right. Like milestone to make, but agreed. But it's it is significantly better than any other one that I've ever had. Most everything else just tastes so like overly sweet, like cloyingly sweet. And this just has like the right level of savory with it. Okay. And you get like the cinnamon kick. I'm sure it would fall off really badly if I tried to keep it, but right now, fresh, it's great. Good deal. It truly tastes like apple pie. Or not apple pie, pumpkin pie. But uh with that, let's uh let's get into the book. So one of the things that I really wanted to mention this week and kind of go back to and, and retread on a little bit is the fact that Titus is a red. And I feel like Titus being ah, red is it a, a fact lot yet? Of, it's well, not a fact yet. Nothing okay. confirms that. There, there's nothing that confirms it, but we're pretty sure. I mean, we're the Gory Dam sure. is, is almost, or sorry, the Bloody Dam is almost totally like a giveaway. And, you know, there's there's no reason for it not to be. And I think we went over a lot of this last week, but now that you've had more time to gestate on those thoughts with Titus, what other thoughts do you have? I had a yeah. really good fucking question about Titus. What was it? We definitely talked about the potential of there being other reds. And the fact that rage is so inner, like twined into his personality. House Mars and his, yep. The, the whole like vengeance, it was what Darrow was supposed to be or what Darrow wanted to be at first. Yeah, but Darrow kind of has the unique trait of being able to hold it back. Okay, there we go. Snapping back to it. So Titus is red. Titus being red poses a lot of big questions. We went over some of this last week, but now that you've had more time to gestate your thoughts, do you have any other ideas about Titus? So it's just kind of big and broad. So I think uh, what this brought up for me the most was who else could be a red? within this society, like within this game, who else could be a red? And I started to think about uh, what Pax Ow Telemannus, is that how you- Yes, Telemannus. Ow Telemannus. Thinking like, he's a big imposing dude. He doesn't seem that intelligent, but um, ultimately what I started thinking about was Darrow kind of surprised the Sons of Ares with his sort of maturity and ability to understand the big picture and temper his rage, his rage a little bit and like act in a way that gets him the farthest forward before exacting whatever revenge or whatever plan that they're out to set. So I think it makes total sense that the two reds in this whole game are both on house Mars, who has the sort of calling card trait of rage. 
Yeah, just just as an addendum to that too. I mean, Lorne Al Lorne Al Arcos. That that name never gets easier. Lorne Al Arcos <laughs> is also the Rage Knight. He's one of the Olympic Knights, and he's with Fitchner picking people out. Right. So that just speaks to it further. Yeah, and Rage is one of like the traits that they're great at scored on. So my my initial thought when hearing about the Jackal was maybe the Jackal's a red too, but then I remembered we know who his father is. We know like we know who, who he comes from and we know he's a gold. So that one's out in, in my mind at least. So you're saying other people so you're saying Pax could be that Pax is my the only one that I've I've heard like we've heard of that kind of fits the role. Why do you think he was put in House Minerva then? That's that's the part that makes me think no. <laughs> well, that's that's fair. <laughs> also, I don't know. I don't remember House Minerva's like. I mean, main. it's it's Athenian, right? So it's off of Athena. So you know, strategy, wisdom, sprung from the head of Zeus. Mm, well, they still also, need they still need muscle, right? Of course, yeah. All the houses have and probably need muscle to some category. So I guess I guess that makes it a little bit more conceivable. But he seems. The the other thing is the leadership part of it, wanting to get as far ahead as possible. And Pax didn't seem to. He seemed definitely to be like a first tier warrior, not necessarily a leader. Sure, sure. And if you if the Reds are out to kind of sabotage from the inside out, they're going to be doing whatever they can, like both Titus and Darrow, to become the leader of their clan or their school. Oh, yeah, totally. And I, I think I don't know if it's declared at any point, but it feels to me as though Mustang has already claimed Primus potentially just because of the way that she's treated in every interaction. Mm, but so was in, in a way. So was Darrow in this in a similar way before he had Primus. Yeah, that's that's also definitely true um, because he is he is ultimately, you know, because there isn't a Primus, it's just pick a leader. I just get a feeling or a sense at the very least from the very few Minervans that we know that Mustang must be the only option. The I, only I think option if she's not already with. Primus, she will be. Okay. Um, but I don't think there's anything that necessarily distinguishes her in a way that tells me, oh, she's definitely already got the Primus title. Sure. Because all it, especially because of later on when Darrow is bestowed with the Primus title, it's with zero fanfare. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's like, he's not treated any differently afterwards, really. It's kind of anticlimactic to an extent. I, so we, we can definitely talk more about this later, but I actually, I really like the way that that's handled and treated because being a leader, you shouldn't be necessarily celebrated. You're just handed a lot more responsibility in the immediate moment. But we've, yes. we've grown to have like a meritocracy sort of society where, you know, it's, it is that way. Um, but- yes, but why is there then a entirely visible scoring system and a race? Oh, because the gold is entirely about vanity to some degree. I, I definitely agree with you. Right. So like th- that, it seemed like those two things were kind of at odds with each other. Sure. Like there's these earn five bars in order to be like reached down by the hand of Primus or whatever the term is grabbed by the hand. Of, what what was it? It's like a hand of the hand of Primus. Yeah, but it's like this real, like, sort of regal bar system. Yeah, right. That you're reaching for, and it's visible to everybody. Mm -hmm. And then it's like two sentences in the book. He's like, 
He's got Primus now. All right. And then there's nothing nothing else, really. Very true. I, I, I'm with you. I agree. I, I think it makes sense that a leader should be a leader for the sake of being the leader and being the best candidate for it. But maybe a little bit more kind of reward ceremony. Like if there's anything that a gold is like worth its ceremony, right? That's true. There, I mean, we do know that there are a lot of earned ceremonious titles like the, the Olympic Knights, like I had talked about before. This whole concept of the peerless scarred, which is like earning a title that makes you better, like some kind of perverse IQ test. I, I definitely um, see what you're saying. Yeah, so I it, it just struck me as a little bit odd, but not necessarily bad. Yeah. We'll get back to that. True. So last week we discussed had, what had to be done with Titus. There's a contemplation that goes on in these first couple pages. You know, the chapter is titled Unity. Just about everyone, including the proctors, think it's A-OK to kill Titus at this point. Kind of like he deserves it for everything that he's done. That gets into A-OK, maybe. Rather, Darrow asks for kind of um, objection to the execution and gets no response from the proctors. Mm -hmm. So I like it's, again, silence doesn't necessarily mean approval, but it doesn't mean disapproval either. Yeah, in this circumstance, for sure. I yeah the the other part of this that's super tough right is that as you think about Titus his there's no doubt that he went through something similar or saw you know like his city basically or his underground mining colony be ruined by the golds as well so I I think he's a very fascinating character because it's tough to say that he's completely faultless but obviously he did wrong but he he did it that that like vengeance made sense because Gold is effectively pillaging society, so he's pillaging golds. Yeah, it's the lack of foresight, I think, that Darrow has. Mm -hmm. Or the not quite the same level of forward thinking and planning and foresight that Darrow has, which, like I mentioned before, like kind of made him unique to the, the people that the Sons of Ares had put forward. That said, do you remember when he asked about like how many people came before him? Yeah, lots. And they said something like 90, 90, 93 yep. um, had tried and failed. Mm-hmm. They never mentioned anything about anybody actively still trying. So do you think it's a different faction that put Titus forward? I don't know. Do you think it's a different faction that put Titus mm-hmm. forward? No. <laughs> I, think, I think it's still Sons of Ares. Why would the Sons of Ares do that? Hedge their bets. That's a, that's a good call. I mean, bet on two racehorses. Gives you better odds of at least winning something. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true. I think I think it's actually really important to clarify too. Every time I say that's that's a good call, I'm trying not to, and I'm definitely not affirming what PJ's saying. I'm just saying, yeah, no, I totally see what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> we did have a conversation about this because, like, I don't want him to spoil anything for me. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone else who's listening who hasn't read it too. So that like, too, that same same deal. So I, I feel like that's probably the best, most unobtrusive way of like, yes, I approve of this thought process without. Yeah. Without like being like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or like. Because clearly like, you know, you know, if I'm right or wrong, that's, that's where I'm at with it. I think, I think, I think the Sons of Ares probably put Titus forward to maybe it was a different leader, so to speak, if, uh, if what's his face isn't actually Ares. 
What was his name again? Uh, you're talking about. We've got we've got a dupe, whole dupe, thing. Dupe. Right How did I Let's remember? See. Dancer. Dancer. Dancer is his name. So if Dancer is just kind of a high level officer of the Sons of Ares, and isn't Ares himself, it's possible that like there are other officers, and they also have put forward champions of the Reds, so to speak. No, that's very true. I mean, you're not. Generally speaking, I think it also speaks against the like chosen one narrative that a lot of fantasy gets stuck in the chosen one trope. Like he's the only one who can do it. And to present that, oh, no, 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 no. This is definitely an organization that isn't just hedging its bets on Darrow. Also kind of puts him on a weird clock, you know, like he is not expendable, but he's not their only plan. He's not their only hope. Right. He's not untouchable, mm-hmm. I guess. He can be... <laughs> He can be removed as just as easily as he was brought up. <laughs> right. No, it was it was just like now Titus is going to be executed, right? So as you'd mentioned, Titus challenges the sentence and Darrow offers Cassius the redemption he desired. And it's definitely kind of a false redemption, right? Because yeah. <laughs> we know that Darrow killed Julian by mashing his face in until it looked like a blood blossom. So uh Right. But but <laughs> It's not really a false redemption in Cassius's eyes. Right, right. It's what dramatic irony. Yeah. That we we know the truth. He doesn't and he's acting in his own sort of. With his own agency. Yeah. Yeah. In, with his own understanding of what's true. I was really expecting Titus to say who he actually killed. Ooh, that would have been a lot. Drop a name in the rain. But I, I don't I don't feel like uh, Cassius even really gives him a chance. Like the fight's pretty quick. He doesn't. No, but he he stops and starts kind of like chuckling and laughing throughout it, doesn't he? It's valid. You know, Titus is ultimately dying at the hand of a gold as a red. And, you know, that's got to feel ironic as a red that's a gold, you know? Yeah. Um, I did like kind of the way this was written on 221. Pissing your pants already, Titus asks. No fretting. I'll be quick about it. Roke performs the necessities and commences the fight. Cassius is not quick about it. Sure. It's fucking brutal what Cassius does to him. Yeah, I, I mean, especially he's like the you killed Julian, you killed Julian, you killed Julian. Um, and then, you know, he stabs him and cuts him from, you know, his balls all the way up to his chest and like continues to stab him. And then the text reads, but Titus is long dead. You know, it's interesting because Titus himself was vengeance and revenge for his people. And... Cassius is exacting revenge for his brother, vengeance or justice in his head. Now that I'm looking at it, he doesn't like laugh, does he? Maybe not. Nope, I don't think so. Yeah, nope, never mind. I don't I just made that up, I think. Well, I mean, that's that's the benefit <laughs> of fiction. You kinda you kinda get nope. a, a fuller picture of scene sometimes. The sort of weight of what just happened hanging in the courtyard. And Darrow kind of realizing that wasn't justice. I think that was one of the phrases. Mm-hmm. That wasn't justice. He murmurs without looking in the or looking me in the eyes. Like it's rage, and it's misplaced rage. But it's he doesn't know that. But also, like th- it wasn't done in a, an honorable sort of judicar judiciary position. Or <laughs> he's not exacting justice in the way that it should be done. He's. He's not exacting justice, he's exacting revenge. But it is kind of just. And? In Cassius's head. Yes, but 
it's not for the crimes that he was on trial for, so to speak. Uh, I mean, murder and rape. No, it was just it was just for his brother. Well, that's that's what the kill. That's what Cassius was killing him for. That's not what he was being sentenced yes, that's what I'm to saying. death for. If that makes sense. Okay. No, I, I I know, I know. That's what I'm saying. Is the person got it? Got it? Got it? You're saying it's stepping outside of the the bounds. Yeah, he's regardless. He was going to be executed anyway. But the fact that he was executed for reasons or at the hand of somebody who had other reasons to kill him. It's a it's a long stain that like Titus's death leaves on the whole the whole shebang in my head. You know, it's 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 a brutal kind of killing of their own because it it was necessary and uh, it's tough. Golds are vicious is basically what we learn and what we pick up here. Revenge, revenge (laughs) is where the society is alive and well. Moving on from the Titus scene, we we see both Cassius and uh, Darrow's bars rise on the hand as we talked about before as they return. I find the next conversation with Fitchner so great. You know, Fitchner like appears with like roast duck, gives, uh, gives Darrow a little bit of duck, talks to them for a bit. And they kind of goad each other back and forth, which I think is great. That was an interesting conversation for me. Do you think that, like, obviously Darrow sort of challenges Fitchner. Do you think that was reckless or do you think it was calculated? I 100% think it was calculated. I think in, in my head, there's no way that it wasn't calculated to exact the information because it kind of, he, he kind of mm-hmm. knows that he can push his buttons, right? So I, I think what's interesting um, is that at first, like Fitchner gives up a little bit of information at the Jackal and kind of talks about it coyly. And that's what I think sets up the rest of like the name calling and everything else. Because it's like, oh, you know more. Oh, oh you you have more information. Yeah. Tell me more. How do I get you to tell me more? I'm going to insult your character and your being and call you a bronzy little fat pig. You stupid idiot. Eat your in and out. You know, like <laughs> also second comedian reference of the night. Whenever I see Jackal, I just imagine Mike Berbiglia's the Jackal. <laughs> the Jackal. <laughs> The jackal. There's a jackal. Anyway, that's a comedian reference. Number oh, two. Me too. And that, I think that's it. Uh, what was the, the first one? Eat your in and out, you fat pig from uh, Tom Segura. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it it was hard for me to really tell if Fitchner was like upset with Darrow for the kind of harsh truths mm-hmm. that he was throwing at him or impressed with him. And I think that was probably intentional and maybe a little bit of both. There's probably some unspoken honor in honesty between golds, but man, it was it was brutally honest. Like uh Fitchner's talking about all his accolades and like the things that he's best at and like He's better than greens and blues at math and science and blah, blah, blah. Why should I care about my my looks? And Darrow says it's because it's what holds him back. And there's not really a response after that, if I recall. Where is that at? So it's on 225, and you're entirely right, because it's what holds you back. And he says, despite my low birth, I am of note. I am important. His hatchet face dares me to contradict. (laughs) It is so brutal and so... Like there's there's a through line of humor between their interaction as well because it's all mostly insults, but they're real insults. I mean, before that sentence, before he he says like all his sort of accolades, Fitchner's jaw muscle flickers. Is it anger? Like, that's the other thing. Like even Darrow's having a hard time reading it. And I I feel like that speaks to him trying to manipulate him a little bit. Um, I don't know. I don't okay. know if it's perfect, of course, on a read on the whole situation, but I feel like it's as close as we get. Uh, I do find, so there are obviously two more pieces of interesting information here that we get, um, is that obviously because Severo captured Minerva's standard, 
they get a package um, which speaks to like Severo's kind of low totem place on the totem pole. But ultimately, you know, he gets to Darrow gets to pick. He gets horses, weapons, and matches, which is great. You know, finally they have horses. Everyone else has horses apparently, but they don't. So this is good for them. Right. That was <laughs> was that last week or was that this week where like they find out that everybody else has horses? I think that was last week. Uh, where they're like everyone else has horses apparently. Um, yeah. Made a made a joke about that. And then the second piece of information is the information about the jackal, which we kind of alluded to earlier, is that he's the arch governor's son. Which uh comes into play with Cassius later. Comes into play with Darrow. Like he is a natural enemy of both of them. Without either of them knowing him or knowing anything about him. Just his lineage makes him like a rage focusing enemy. And that's that's gonna go poorly, I think, for one of them. Or both of them. I think Cassius. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, dude, that cocktail was so fucking good. I'm gonna make those way more often. Cool. I haven't ever made one with like fresh lime juice hmm. and like homemade simple syrup. It was so fresh, pretty, tasty, everything I wanted. And all I wanna do is go make more of them, but I don't have more lime. Lemon. 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 So Antonia is also still proving to be an ass throughout these sections, despite like Darrow uniting the house. Um, we even see Pollux and Vixix. Vixis. Is it Vixis that becomes more friendly or is it Pollux? I forget. Uh, fuck. Fuck. I don't remember. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be reminded later. <laughs> we'll um, figure it out. Yeah, we, we, we see some of that. Uh, it's. It's interesting to Darrow has like an internal monologue throughout the whole thing, considering the enemies that are in front of him as golds, you know, like his golden enemies and his golden allies. And then he considers the fact that all of his golden allies are really golden enemies. Like they're all actual members of the society. There's still a part of the larger problem for him. Like regardless of what allies he makes here, he's going to have to break those alliances eventually and probably sooner than later. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's also like hints of that with the conversation between him and Severo here. Just it's it's really quick and short. You know, they're talking about the Severo with the wolf pelt on his back. And he says, I killed their pack leader. Oh, don't worry. I wouldn't fit in your skin. It's kind of A, love Severo. B, yeah. I mean, any of them would probably skin him to be in there in like his place for the most part, except for maybe Severo. Yeah, I think that was I think that was more... Uh, figurative oh entirely then then he comes across as but it could come across as literal as well knowing severo he's clearly meaning it like i couldn't fill your shoes i couldn't i couldn't be the leader of the house i couldn't gain the respect of the other students blah 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 also physical skin do you think that's like almost a threat nah i think it's a joke i think i think you're right but I think it could it could have it could have come across as like I could skin you like I could kill and skin you if well, I wanted to. Yeah, there's also that Severo's kind of crazy. <laughs> right, that's that's where I'm coming from. Like, yeah. what does he really mean here? I also so we we find out that he basically puts Severo in charge of the other low drags like him, uh, which are all the weird named characters that we got earlier from uh, Cassius going down the table: uh, Thistle, Screwface, Clown, Pebble, and Weed. So those are all the sort of like low drafts, not low, they're none, none of the low drafts other than Severo. Like they're all the kind of the upper mid drafts. 
but they're the lowest of the low because all the low drafts other than Severo got fucking murdered uh-huh. by the other students. So like these are the kind of, you got by, you got through, good job kind of students. Yep. I really dig this this entire section for, for that reason. So on, on page 230, there's this conversation. We get inklings of Darrow's motivation to end the war with Mustang. You know, I'm, I'm tired of this war. Somewhere in the south or west, the jackal is building his strength. Somewhere my enemy, the arch governor's son, is readying to destroy me. And, you know, they, they make jokes about launching Severo over the, uh, over the ramparts to Minerva's with a catapult. Um, you know, it's like, how the fuck do we do this? And so we get the inklings of the plan. Go to Diana from Roke. Right. So the uh, filament on my printer started, like, catching on itself. So I, like, took my headphones off for a second to unclip it, and I think I missed the question. The question was, obviously, Darrow wants to end the war. It's, it's kind of a statement, so to speak. Um, and I think Roach is a great tactician here. Yeah, Roke definitely kind of proves himself a great tactician, but what else does he have? Well, he's a poet, man. He's a poet. But as far as like warfare goes, he's not a great, like he's not a big imposing figure. He's small, he's nimble, he's fast. He obviously can kill somebody because he's here. I think it it kind of makes sense that he's definitely more of the intelligence focused tactician mentality as opposed to the frontline role. Yes, he he's proving he's proving himself to be good at the only thing he could really be good at in warfare. That's fair. Um, I think Roke doesn't want to be a warrior, though, right? Like he he no, dreams he of being like a politician. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think that's the point is he is he is carving out for himself the role that he's good at as the role that he's in. He knows he's not going to be the best like frontline fighter and doesn't want to be one. But if he can be the person kind of pulling the strings and making decisions, and if he's the one in the war room. Which we know he like is part of the war room committee. He can kind of be a headlining figure and a leader of sorts without risking himself on the front line of the battlefield. And I think that is a perfect fit for him. Yeah, totally. I mean, he definitely shows up still in the battlefield, but I, I do see what you're saying. But he's not going to be the one riding up first, calling out Paxal Telemannus' name. <laughs> Darrow is. Right. We're like Paxes. <laughs> or like Paxis, mm-hmm. or Cassius, or Mustang, or mm-hmm. Titus, or even Antonia, to some degree. Antonia is a snitch or an arc. I can't tell. Okay, so <laughs> on their ride to Diana, um, Severo and Darrow exchange blows over both their places in the draft and society, um, and they also chat about the passage and how obviously disappointed people were that he killed Priam. Yeah, but fuck him. Fuck Priam. Priam died. Yeah, like, what what do you think about what they said about the rest of it? Like the fact that he was the last pick, you know, like two thirty three. I think they're going to pick on anybody with a like undesirable trait as much as they can, and I think Severo probably understands that, and he's just going to kind of let it let it roll off his back. I, I don't think it's really going to bother him, but I think he knows that he'll never be a real leader because of it. But the fact that he survived kind of proves that he's scrappy and. He technically upset the early pick and like one of the most promising candidates, but he also knows that he killed him within a couple seconds and stomped on his trachea. 
mm-hmm. and like murdered the shit out of that dude. Like it wasn't a close fight, and he just kind of eked out a win. Mm-hmm. Like he he straight up destroyed him, and I think it's good enough for him to know that he's here for his merit and not necessarily off of a fluke. That's that's a good point for Severo's mentality for sure. And he doesn't he doesn't seem to be like a typical gold where he's searching out for he doesn't seem super vain like the rest are. He's not. He's straight up not vain like the rest are. So the fact that they make fun of him or they they kind of uh, make fun of or insult him for it, kind of make him lesser than because of it. I don't think he cares. What you make um their conversation continues obviously, you know, in, in Darrow or Rather, Severo reveals that he's pretty sure that he knows that Darrow killed Julian and they decide to drop it. You know, I I find that interesting. I also find Darrow's then, because of this argument, like his wanting to break the silence on his secret that he's read to Severo, like very humanizing for Darrow, you know? Yeah, there are a few situations where like the sort of loneliness creeps into our understanding of Darrow. And this is definitely one of those. But another one is the desire to share, the desire to not be alone in this thought. And I think if there was any way that Titus could have won or not one, but could have survived. I think he probably would have let that slip. You think Darrow would have let Titus live? No, no, no. If there was any situation where Titus lived after Darrow learned that he was a red, I think their interactions would have been a lot different. If not an explicit telling of, hey, I'm a red too, maybe a showing of it, because he mentions like he's pretty sure the uh, proctors are listening and like watching and everything. But subtly showing his redness to him to kind of make a bond and maybe make amends would have happened. But I, I think coming backwards, the the passage at the bottom of 233, I want to tell him I'm red. Some, some part of me thinks he is too. Uh, and some other part thinks he'll respect me more if he knows I'm a red. He's lonely. He's alone. He, like he is utterly alone. There's nobody here that understands what he's going through, even though all of them assume they do because they all are going through something tough. Right, right. And um, Severo kind of harkens to like the I've earned my place sort of mentality. And that's where like Darrow's coming from, too, is like, well, dude, I've earned my place. I was in a mine. I didn't know the world existed. <laughs> I, I was in a mine. Well, that's that's a really for context, right? Do, what do you think? Do you think Severo's a red, too? I think. No, you you don't get to answer that because you've already read this book. I I'm. I'm so yeah. torn on it because he does not act like a ret or like a gold, but that also knowing what Darrow had to go through in order to be ready to live with the golds and act like a gold, it would be so irresponsible to act so differently than them and try to blend in. So I think he's, I think he's just a fucking oddball. Sebro? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially so when you consider, when you compare like the very limited gold references that we've had so far... Fitchner is maybe the closest to Severo, which is, you know, the bronzy section of society where it's like they don't really care. Mm, it's it's less than that. Like, it's different than that, though, too. Agreed. I just feel like that's the closest yeah, example I, that we have. Fair. And otherwise, we have mostly uppity children, you know? Yeah. Okay. Can I ask you this question? Mm-hmm. The first time you read this book, did you think Severo was also a red? I don't think I was even caught up in that. I was trying. I'm trying. I was trying to figure out who the jackal was. I, at the immediate moment, I was most most shocked that Titus was a red because we did kind of get a chosen one story. Yeah, and so obviously the expansion into there being other possible options made sense to me. 
but I was more likely to think that we were either a converting a red. We were told is incredibly rare, like very difficult to pull off for a ton of different reasons. So it seemed unlikely to me that there was another red, but I thought if there was, it would come in the form of another character later. So I didn't rule out the idea of there being another red. I just didn't look in the inner circle for Darrow, if that made sense. That's fair. That that makes sense. Severo is definitely an oddball, though. So I can I can see where you're pulling that from for sure. Well, I'm pulling it from Darrow. Also thinks he's a red. Darrow. Yeah, Darrow. Also, that's where I'm pulling it from. But I don't I don't think so because of how odd he is. I don't think I don't think they'd go through with a plan with somebody who can't act like the typical gold and blend in. Yeah, I will. I will neither confirm nor deny your theory, but I will say good job for thinking. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> we we get a we get a quick detour. Um, obviously, they're they're heading towards House Diana. We get introduced to the two important Dianians so far. Dianians, how how what's the plural? Dianas, mm. Di- Dianians. I feel like it's Dianians. Someone correct me and let me know. Um, I'll correct you. Don't you fucking dare! It's Dianians. Is it? I don't know. I feel like that's got to be the closest. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we get to introduce them, um, Tactus and Tamara. Do you find anything interesting about either of them? I kind of like Tactus, but that's just me. Yeah, I, I like his entire interaction and like sly sort of smooth talking into getting them to be on his side. Darrow's smooth talking? Yeah, Darrow's. Yeah. What'd you think of Tactus and Tamara? I am going to be completely honest with you. Mm-hmm. I don't. No, <laughs> like this is this is a small chunk of the of the reading that I don't have a lot of like really memorable like points in my head. That's fair. I remember I remember him like them like just straight up calling him Reaper, um, which like lets me know probably the Proctors, like they did with the Jackal, are spreading information about other characters including himself to other houses that's my guess is like they heard about the reaper from proctor the man with the the reaper scythe or the the scythe whatever mm-hmm. they called severo a pygmy <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know the height insults and severo really don't get old but also like oh my god it's, it's i don't just- know why i don't remember this that well like it's cool. I don't have another question on this section because I definitely understand. There's just so much that goes on here that this is just description of like a new place. Like they live in the trees, which is interesting and different. Like they don't have a straight up regular fortress so far as we're aware or made aware. Right. And they, they kind of bicker back and forth a little bit, right? Yeah. Almost like siblings. Yeah. Texas and Tamara do a bit. Who's the bodyguard? Oh, Severo's the bodyguard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I... I mean, I like the thought process of approaching another house as an ally to uh, take down another. Yeah, good work, Rob. Yeah, yeah, that was a good move. Smart, uh, smart thinking. So with that, now that House Diana has agreed, we move in to the most fun chapter, I think, of this entire section. The Fall of Mustang, chapter 31. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I was dude, so pumped when I read great. that title. Um <laughs> like I turn the page and I look over and I'm like 31 the fall of Mustang I'm like oh yep. shit yes 
Let's bring this on. And I, I love I love the banter, the brotherly banter here between Cassius Rook and Darrow. You know, the, well, I do believe I'm the lightning, Cassius declares, and you, my brooding friend, are the thunder. Then what am I, Rogue asks, kicking his horse up beside us. The wind? You're full enough of it, I snort, the hot sort. And it's just, you know, it's good. I mean, it, it's, but again, it get, that gets into the sort of Shakespearean flowery language that I guess, I guess the point is that's what the golds talk like. Yeah, it's high speak. And it's annoying as shit <laughs> and not like it it feels so unnatural i guess it's not it's not that annoying but i can't put myself into a situation where that would feel like a normal interaction between people it feels like old hollywood that they don't have to act they're they're sort of the acting gestures and speaking voices that they're accustomed to before they sort of normalized acting like real people I definitely hear what you're saying. I I think that the part of this that's interesting is that so much of high speech, as they call it, um, because there's high speech, mid speech and low speech in gold culture. Right. So high speech is this sort of overly formal fashion that people speak in, which does feel more like acting, like conversational acting, as you're saying. Right. Mm -hmm. But it. It also, depending on the character, has airs of acting, right? Like, right. do they maybe know other information? It really doesn't give away the goat, you know, in, in terms of what their real intention is, which lets, lets us kind of sit here and question in some yeah, circumstances but, what they mean. So I, I guess my question is, why wasn't this sort of speech exhibited when he was sort of goading Fletcher? Fitchner? Because that's mid-speech. Fitchner. Like Fitchner. It's, yeah, it's I guess. like insults. You know, like that's that's why. Yeah, but so is this. Like, this is them insulting each other too. He kind of just turned it into a joke. Yeah, right? like, I guess so. I guess Cassius so. is talking positively, and then Darrow turns it into a joke. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I'm the lightning, you're the thunder. Like I strike first, you're right there to back me up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what yeah. am I? The wind, and then Roke's the poet, and so it's kind of funny to call him the fart. I mean, it's it's funny to call anybody the fart. Farts are funny. Butt jokes, man. Butt jokes. So. <laughs> my my bread and butter. I, I love the setup of the battlefield here. So beyond the killing field is grass, oceans of grass so high in some places that Severo could stand tall and still not be seen. I find it really cool, too, as shortly before we've seen descriptions of nearly everyone with Darrow. And this is just a passing mention of Severo that really isn't actually pointing out where Severo is. Right. It's but it's it, just good. I think the I think that's the point. Is right. We don't we don't know where Severo is, but we know that he could be anywhere, and that's that's kind of a clever way to do it. It's a little bit overt, but also like, how would you do it otherwise? I think I I feel like the only reason that we think it's overt is because we're rereading it. Like you would have to like you're rereading it. Seems it. I'm I'm just well, reading it. Well, I guess rereading it. Right yeah, now. we're rereading it right now and we're analyzing it. Right. So if you're just reading it, you might not think that the immediate moment. I guess that's that's a part of like tearing apart a book is you do kind of we get into these micro things. Whereas you're reading it the first time you get the shock and awe. Right. Because you might not have been paying attention to it. Then you go back and you're like, oh, it was clearly planted. I'm just an idiot. Maybe skipped it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But I, I definitely agree with you. It's it's interesting, especially later when they're when, you know, Mustang obviously isn't stupid. She understands, you know, the tricks that Gold's play in general. And she understands, too, that Severo 
And the Howlers, like, she understands that the small fighting force is something to be reckoned with. So she, like, checks and makes sure she goes ahead and burns the fields, you know, like a field anyway for them to fight in, for the duel to happen. I don't have men in the grass. Good. Then no one will burn. I, and it, I think in her, like, if I was in her situation, I'd do the same thing. Sure. I can trust you. But also, I'm not gonna, and I'm gonna do this anyway. Yeah. It's it's like, well, if if you haven't done anything, this does no harm. Right. Like, oh, no, I have to look at charred wheat for a while. Oh, my castle. Ugh, whatever. Um, And then the uh, then the (laughs) the fight with Pax happens. Yeah. Yeah. The the (laughs) duel, the duel between Pax and Darrow is great because (laughs) Pax is a fucking mammoth of a man. I mean, it's just just great. Darrow tries to correct the to yielding thing by saying yeah. to death but gets re-corrected into saying it's to yielding but mm-hmm. i mean that was a i it was a definitely kind of a power move of confidence and like raising the stakes a little bit i i also really kind of there, there's like a weird interesting ceremonial bonding that happens on 243 you know pax booms i suppose we ought to give them a show and then they share a real grin and it's a compliment of sorts that they would all come to watch. I, I find I find it interesting that they're like grinning and smiling at each other as they're about to like try to tear each other's throats out, basically. Yeah, it's it's like it's respect almost. It's respect, but it's also the fact that all the proctors came to watch tells them that they're doing something significant enough worthy of that. And that they're individually and together significant enough. And important enough to to merit that. Um, sure. So, like a little bit of pride, a little bit of ego, maybe a little bit of fun. And if they know it's just to yielding, maybe a little, maybe a little bit more fun. Yeah, and especially even if it's yielding and the fun thing, it, I think it's not just fun; it's honor for Darrow to a certain degree, right? Because at the bottom of the page. Um, I stumble my feet with my sling blade. Mud covers me. I glance at the walls. Their armies ring. Their army rings the parapet. Couldn't help but watch the champions fight. This is the point. I could give the signal. But then he clarifies, our nearest horseman is 600 meters away, much too far. I plan for that, yet I do not signal. I want my own victory today, even if it's a selfish one. My army has to know why I lead. Goose flesh. It makes sense, though. And also, yeah. this this is... Once again, conversations that we've had in the past. This is a very good convert to TV show or movie cinematic moment of him looking around, maybe an internal monologue of like, what could he be doing right now? But the decision making and him like seeing everything that's happening from his perspective and making a decision to continue fighting, even though probably doesn't have to yeah i mean you don't have to look further than like some of the duels of jamie lannister or um like the hound uh in the mountains duel for instance to see kind of certain similar states of desperation uh and like thinking and wanting and reacting and i feel like that's a lot of what this fight is including that moment right mm-hmm. where he kind of makes the decision where he knows that he could make he could make the call but decides instead that he'd rather win the fight if he can. Right. 
Um, at the same time, though, even even if his primary motivation is selfish, it could be easily argued that it's calculated in that he's taking he's taking out the most capable fighter of their crew. And I mean, that's contingent on him winning. But either way, he's going to probably at least nearly incapacitate him. So even yeah. if he doesn't survive this duel, he's by going through with it, he is severely increasing the uh, the odds of his his team winning, so to speak, because he's taking out their their biggest fighter. I definitely agree. I think that you're entirely right, especially considering tactic or not tactics, uh, Pax's place in previous fights. Right. You know how he literally like has tackled horses. He tackled the horse that Darrow was he, on by shouting. He tackled him. a fucking horse. Yeah, right. So like, it definitely makes sense in both contexts. But he also could make the call and continue fighting him. You know. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I think it would have stopped though. I think Pax would have kind of retreated. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he would have stayed engaged with Darrow if he would have made made the the signal. I find it interesting that like his move is basically to blind him with mud, you know, inside of his helmet, and then to take him out at that point. Swings the heavy axe back into him, <laughs> and then howls. They all have, and we get into one of my like favorite goose fleshy segments of the book. You know, like the the, the fight scene is intense and beautiful, and appended with this is just this crazy dark badass moment that happens right afterwards you know um everyone howls mustang hears the dread sound behind her and she wills on her horse her face is one of terror howls from laughing proctors except minerva apollo and jupiter howls from the bellies of dead horses in the middle of the killing field the ones near her open gate they're in the mud mustang shouts she's almost right but she thinks like a gold Someone screams as they see Severo and his howlers cutting their way out of the stitched-up bellies of the dead and bloated horses that litter the mud up to the gate. Like demons being born, they slither from swollen guts and parted stomachs. A half-score of House Diana's best soldiers exit with them. Tactus and and his spiked hair burst from the belly of a pale mare. He runs with weed and thistle and clown, all within 50 meters of the ponderously slow gates. Being sewn into a horse is fucking brutal and so below a gold. So, like, inconceivably low that they wouldn't even consider it. Like, Mustang knows about House Mars and how they fight and how they make plans. At least a little bit. And even her kind of, like, she she wouldn't even consider the idea well but also it's so unconventional that like no one would think of it anyway that like these horse carcasses are literal trojan horses (laughs) (laughs) oh man it's fucking brutal i love it Uh, how's this uh, how's this set your standard for the rest of the series in terms of surprises shakeups etc the rest of the series i have no idea (laughs) i the rest of this book and the rest of the Institute. Okay, that's another question I had. Yeah. Is the entirety of the Institute, quote unquote, this 
exercise? Well, we'll just have to figure that out. By this exercise, do you mean this book? Or No, 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 no. No, uh, them in war with the other houses. Oh, yeah. Good, good question. Has that, that hasn't been talked about yet, has it? Nope. I just, I want to see it. I want to <laughs> see Severo ripping through the esophagus of a horse. Crawling out with his long knives. Mm-hmm. Ugh, yeah. Love it. Love it. And yeah. uh, and just like that, Minerva falls. You know, I, I truly imagine this is kind of like a battle of the bastards sort of thing. I mean, it's only, I know it's only like 50 versus 50, but like... The, but just it, kind of the, the moments it's also like on. within a couple minutes they say yeah we yeah. destroy house minerva in minutes high above high above the proctors still howl and laugh i think they are drunk it's over for must uh it's over before our muskane can do anything except gallop away across the muddy field through the still smoldering gla- uh, grass yeah and and she runs away and ultimately is chased by hey we confirmed the titus goons uh the defector titus goon is pollux um and vixus and cassandra are the ones that are chasing her darrow's in front and is really afraid that either of them are going to choose to kill him at this point uh wait no 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 read the bottom of that paragraph unlike pollux they still hate me and my howlers and cassie's are far away yet no uh no knife comes right right so pollux pollux is the one that doesn't hate him which is what i said pollux oh. unlike the other two okay gotcha 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 yeah, yeah. Um, no, no worries but yeah so like yet and yet no knife comes but he's he's concerned you know like he thinks they're fucked in the head then he he finds mustang in the woods because of her eyes what'd you think of that his like choice not to reveal her it was selfish again i think why is it selfish because i think he knows that Maybe not. Maybe not selfish. I think it was a little bit more forward thinking, but also selfish. I think also self- selfish because um, I think he has plans to use Mustang in the future for his own gain at the expense of kind of betraying. Uh, betray is a strong word for it, but betraying his uh, his class or like his his um, house. House. I keep saying school, don't I? But his, his house. They're on this search. But yeah, I I said class, but I've been I've been saying school before. But his like everyone in his house is out looking for or these people specifically what uh, Vixis and Cassandra are looking for her. And he's intentionally withholding that information, presumably. For the future, maybe for the gain of House Mars as a whole, but the fact that he's kind of the one controlling that information kind of makes it selfish. Mm-hmm. I think it could be argued that it is utilitarian, but I think it's probably easier to just call it selfish. That's fair. Um, I feel like it's just strictly because he thinks that Vixis and Cassandra are going to kill her and he doesn't think that that's right. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I'm saying you're saying from the utilitarian perspective and that's abandoning his house. But I feel like he's retaining humanity like he's he's choosing humanity over his house. Okay, I was thinking more so. He could use her later. Totally. That that is also a possibility. I agree with that. I just think that that's what it is, is my reflection. But I agree with your also like resolution on it. Mm -hmm. I think as a baseline, it's humanity. It additionally could be tactics. I see where you're leaning with it. 
Uh, um, but at the same time, like the decision is, uh, where's the quote? Um, EO didn't deserve to die a slave to society. And despite her color, Mustang didn't, doesn't deserve any sort of bridal, which is based on the, uh, the comment from, uh, Vixus earlier. Uh, yeah, he made some comments about riding her. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. It's I, I, like the paragraph or two of love. Mm-hmm. But that segues into is this the last, no, second to last chapter of yep. this section. So the next chapter is titled Antonia, which, uh, like a lot of our chapters, is both misleading and leading. I find right off the bat, you know, we, we get kind of a general overview of how the capture happened and then turning on House Diana. Um, and uh, Diana is, or Di- House Diana is embarrassed to be caught in, in this situation, you know, kind of brutal on Darrow's part. But then she gets trampled to death by an act that wasn't a part of House Mars. Mm, where's that at? 247. I remember it, but okay. So have decency, she cries. You're not a man of her word. When they try to break out the fifth night, we capture every last one of them except for Tamara. She fell from her horse and was trampled to death in the mud. Her saddle was right. cut underneath. Sever shows me the cleanly severed strap strip of leather. Tactus? Probably. <sighs> yep. Tactus uh, a mean motherfucker. Real siblings to the to the nth degree. <laughs> that, that that's some brutal sibling yeah. shit. I forgot that you mentioned that there. That you thought that there were siblings earlier. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't think they were siblings. I think they were like acting like, oh god, bickering like siblings. Got it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That, but really, that, they just hated <laughs> each other. <laughs> yeah, or Tactus won Primus and didn't think he was going to get it, and it is ultimately kind of her fault because Tactus did want to kill him. You know. Mm-hmm a good point so uh obviously the whole like the the tactus thing like taking them over is crazy i do like um the additional flash of brotherly love that happens here with uh cassie is basically offering up positions to roke and darrow in the fleet in the bologna fleet as praetors um which is incredible for darrow it struck me it struck me as almost out of touch though what do you mean like he's offering him these positions, but like he knows maybe he doesn't know, but like they're kind of in contention to gain those like positions that his his father holds right now. Um so I don't feel like this spoils anything and I don't feel like the picture's painted clearly, but I would argue with you and say that they are there. It's not like Darrow is going to replace his father, but Darrow would be put on a track to replace him when he retires. Potentially, if he were to go like Primus, win the house and everything else, you still have to like, you still obviously like you don't know shit about ships. Like you're not just put in charge. So But I, I think I guess, I guess that, that makes sense. But yes, yeah. I, I definitely I see what you're saying, and I agree with that. 
But I also think that Cassius is basically saying, I think I can offer you guys a shortcut based on our performance here, regardless. And he also kind of looks down as though he thinks that it's, you know, lower than them potentially to like reiterate what you're saying. Like they might be able to strive for higher than just being praetors in a fleet. Right. That's I guess that's where I was kind of coming from. Yes. It seemed it seemed like he was. Not intentionally, but offering something almost insultingly off base for what they are qualified for. Yeah, I I think um I think I think you're right. A like obviously they're kids and he probably he doesn't really have the right to do that, you know? That too. <laughs> but that's I, the other thing to keep like remembering. Like most of the like obviously Darrow is what 18, but most of the kids here mm-hmm. are 16 years old. Like I did we talk about this last week? Like you and I were fucking idiots at 16. Like you and I together and individually and specifically were fucking idiots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we were definitely dumb. And I feel like this gets more into it a little bit later. Which, I mean, it's not that much later. But as we talk about, uh, like, Roke having affection or love for Leah and being like, oh, I, wa- I want to kiss her. And yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. And yeah. a really big deal with, uh, with, with Darrow and everyone else. I just, be- before we move on from this, I, I just want to say, I feel like this is a really good brotherly love moment, though, where, like, Cassius is afraid of breaking up the band. And he doesn't want this to end because he really does like his newfound friends. Yeah. For now. For now. But we know what happens later. But yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like he he is kind of in this like, once we get home from summer camp, I'm I'm, going to invite you to my place and my dad's going to give you jobs and we'll be together forever. Kind of like. It's it's a little bit naive. Oh yeah, definitely naive. I definitely agree with you there that it is a naive position to take in the whole thing. And then Lilith comes and offers the army basically a temporary truce to some degree, uh, you know, between the north and the south for a bit, as well as weapons if they give up the Reaper. And we get the first appearance of actual plasma weapons. With the ion blades. Yeah. And they give her, or uh, she gives Cassius two of them mm-hmm. as a like, here, take these and think about it. We'll give you 50 more, 48 yep. more, whatever. So um, part of, I, I just want to clarify, and we can definitely go back to that in a second. Part of what I love about high speech also is the ability to deliver these sort of like characters with these lines and have it be taken kind of seriously. So Lilath shows up and basically demands these things of the Reaper and them with very high speech. Uh, so, you know, I make no words with dead boys. My master has put his mark on the Reaper before winter comes, he will be dead by one hand or another. It is very high. The high speech is very fantasy in science fiction and everything else is kind of science fiction. If yeah. that makes sense. So it is. It's like it's like the elves. 
It's definitely sort of the real kind of regal, elegant culture amongst this kind of dirty place. That- but nothing about the golds is necessarily dirty. Um, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I mean the the situation they're in, the tasks that they have to gotcha, gotcha perform. Gotcha. I see there. I mean, Titus and his his group were literally eating raw meat for like a month. Yeah, like it's pretty, pretty fucking brutal. It's pretty unfortunate. Titus is it's, dead now, though. PJ. Well, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck him. Get his memory out of here. Yeah, but as soon as she's here, she's kind of gone. Like she, yeah. she gives her her like she says her piece and she goes. So she, we we skipped over one important thing that she also gives. She gives Cassius a little pouch um, that likely has a hollow disc or hollow image of some kind on it. At least, well, we know that. I assumed it was gold. It could have been gold when I first read it. There's also like no pointing to gold or like any kind of currency really being accepted. But it could be like I don't know drugs or something. Cassius is, you know, like. He isn't a pixie, but he definitely flirts with that side a little bit. You know, like he kind of flirts with the, you know, drug abuse, like pinks and stuff like that. The the like hierarchy of society at the very beginning when he talks about like going. He's indulgent. Yes, there he's indulgent. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but you're right. That was probably thinking about it. It probably didn't make the most sense in the situation they're in. They've been out here for like six months at this point. Information's going to be the the most valuable currency that they've got. Right, right. So from here, we move into two very different ambushes. The f- uh, Rather, maybe even three. So the first is Severo is told by Darrow to steal the pouch oh, that he shoves uh, in his ship. Let's, let's take one step backwards. The jackal knows about me. The thought makes me shiver. Rook's words are worse. Did you notice how her hair clattered? He said. Oh, he asks. Yeah. Uh, his face is white. Her braids were laced with teeth. Like she's got fucking teeth braided into her hair. You know, enough to the point where her riding away makes a clattering noise. That's yeah. That's I mean that's a big deal, right? So she's one of the jackals, as we know. The jackal. Yeah. It's- terrifying it's that's it's that's like my figure of her is very much like on a pale horse the like horseman pestilence um you know like i i just get like a very end of the world apocalypse vibe from her yeah i could see that um especially with the teeth in there yeah i got more of a uh white girl with cornrows kind of vibe <laughs> but <laughs> You know, I I think she's described as not white, um, which is another oh, another point. Is she? I can't remember if that's in this book or the next one or a different well, one. I she's I, as far as I understand, they didn't describe her actual physical appearance. Uh, um, Moonface cheeks scarred and pockmarked from her time at the institute. Dyed her golden dark hair black and her bones into her braids. Yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway. I got kind of a just kind of badass down again. Tom Segura, <laughs> the t- Tom Segura white girls with corn ro- cornrows joke. <laughs> if you find a Fair. white girl with cornrows, just know she's down to do whatever. Jesus, 
including murder. So ultimately, Darrow is the one who chooses to betray Cassius again. You know, the first time wasn't like a, an innate betrayal. Like he wasn't really choosing to. He didn't have a choice to murder Julian. But on a very, on a on an ethical level, it's hard to not see it as a betrayal. Uh, I disagree. What? I don't see it as a betrayal. Well, he had to kill him in order to yeah, no, Julian, no, right? that's what that's what I'm saying is I don't think that's a betrayal of Julian. I don't think that was a choice that that Darrow got to make and say yes, I am actively choosing to kill this man in in defiance of my friendship with his brother. Like I don't see it as a betrayal because I don't see it as a choice that Darrow got to make. I think it was a situation that he was put in. And it was live or die. I, I definitely agree with you. I, I'm i sim- simplifying it down a little bit to say from Cassius's perspective, it's kind okay. of a betrayal. Whoever whoever killed him has betrayed him and wronged the house Bologna, right? For whatever reason. He believes it's Titus in the beginning. But I also think there's a betrayal in not being honest and truthful about it. I, I just want to like clarify. I still think either okay. way, I, it's I a do betrayal. agree with you on that. I, I agree with you on that. I think... Um, the act itself is not a betrayal. Maybe a an act of aggression towards House it's Bologna. You know, mm, I don't know about that either. Regardless, like the, in, in my head, it's survival. The, the The killing of the fifty is unjust, right? Okay, but it is survival. But 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 individually, Darrow's action, right, of killing Julian, I don't think was unjust. I don't think was betrayal it was fucked up and the the entire sort of scenario was unjust but his his actions were completely out of survival and i I don't think morality really comes into play there that's fair i i definitely i yeah i i think you're right i it's it's tough obviously from cassius's perspective and we can get into that more later when when he from from cassius's perspective i think i think he's clouded by rage of course, of course. So we'll, we'll get into that more in the back half of this. But uh, and finally, you know, Darrow was made primus for conquering Minerva and Diana, which is a huge, oh, victory. A huge victory uh, that lasts like a page less, less than a paragraph. <laughs> well, I think the whole thing is like a page. I am primus is at the middle of two fifty one. Um, but but like, there's this whole after my victory. Oh, I guess there. I guess like, there is a feast. Basically, a page. Yeah. I guess there's a feast, but even Rook he comes says to stand beside really, me to watch the feast. Yeah, it's, it's still really a little bit right. But again, that that could just be the way that it's written. Like, if there's a feast, maybe there's just a lot of details that are left out in the writing. I also, I, I think that there's something about Darrow's perspective here, right? That's important to remember in, especially in POV characters, right? He's like, you know, it's honorifics, it's whatever. He he downplays it because he doesn't. He views the hand of getting Primus as important, not the festivities, right? Okay. You know? Yeah. Because he does say things like, you know, miracles do happen. You know, I'm Primus. I have five golden bars. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, and maybe it's just him actively trying not to indulge in festivity. Keep his mind sharp, I guess, a little bit. Right. We'd also mentioned but it before. We did. Sorry. I didn't really have anything. Oh, no. Else I, to I say. wasn't even talking about that. I was talking about the kissing Leah thing, is what I was going to Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, because we do get to that scene now. You know, and, and I do really appreciate the uh, these people, regardless of their parenting or upbringing in society, in some ways are still just children at heart. You know, that that's how I think about it. And the, the specific lines quoted, I'd forgotten that we are people 
kids who have crushes. Yeah. Yeah, this is what we were talking about like an hour ago. Only it's they're fine. only sixteen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's at sixteen, stupid, young, in love, also in charge. Something that's fascinating though, that I feel like we've talked about off air before, is these people are high school age, right? Yeah. So they're sophomores and Darrow is a senior when, when we consider their actual age differences. So like right. Darrow knows more. He doesn't know everything, but he knows more. But these um, people are also only trained in philosophy and other things. And so they also come off as very mature, but they're also still children in a way. It's it's just so that dichotomy is very interesting. Hear me out. Um, right now, thinking about high school. I don't really have a good distinction between sophomore and senior year as far as like maturity levels and such. But I remember feeling like there was a big jump there when I was in that scenario. So trying to put myself back into that situation of like, all right, I'm 18. I'm dealing with 16 year olds. Um, it's tough to do, but like it's been it, it doesn't feel in my mind that they're that different, but I know they feel that way mm-hmm. probably. And I'm just trying to, trying to figure out the best way to like put myself into that <laughs> mindset. Yeah. You know? and, and to me, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's definitely not easy to like backtrack that way emotionally. I can see where they're coming from. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, do you remember being a sophomore and like looking up to seniors? Of course. Thinking they're so much more mature. But now, like, looking at high schoolers, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint who was more mature between a sophomore and senior. Yeah, it's interesting because it does feel like there's a crazy evolution that happens over, I would argue, six years. I would argue from freshman to sophomore in college. Like, that that evolution is much wider and much more interesting. I'd, I'd say it even is wider than that. Well, I mean, it perpetuates to the entire life cycle. But I think one of the quickest changes you see is from a freshman to a sophomore in college and how yeah, things yeah, dramatically that's change true. and maturity shifts um, based that's, on responsibility that's or not true. taking responsibility. Um, that's definitely true. But I, I do agree with you. I definitely not only like looked up to seniors, but definitely had some like idols and role models in the back of my head that were, you know, as depicted looked great, but they were also just figuring shit out. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting to like also look at the Institute as basically like a crazy, weird, glorified version of a high school that also determines your place in society going forward forever. You know, <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Uh, standardized testing much? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wouldn't call this standardized. No, because uh, no, it's getting not. different tests all the time, but it's fair. Right. I see what you're saying. Um, no, I know. So we we move on from the childhood conversations to a night in bed, you know, where they're falling, where, you know, Darrow's falling asleep, dreaming of EO, which is, I think, a great callback to the reason that he's going through all of this and thinking about his friends. And then Leo wakes him up saying that Roke has fallen into a crevice and he gets chased off into the night with Vixus and Cassandra and Antonia looking to kill him. Right. He he realizes pretty quickly that it's a trap and makes some pretty quick swift movements to like hide in the fog right off the right off the path. Yeah, so there there are two things that are are very sad and apparent to me here. One or like one that's very apparent, I should say, not sad, is I, I do get this image again of Cassandra and Vixis being like Ursula's eels and Antonia being Ursula. 
you know, kind of like the the like come out and play kind of like attitude and statements that she keeps making. Mm-hmm. I, I really like, but I also get that kind of like playful evil sense. It's great writing. So it's, it's really what I'm getting down to. It is. The thing that I immediately maybe cynically thought about was uh, Roke and his conversation that he just had and Leah knowing like it made it almost sound like a setup from the beginning with Roke's conversation hmm. of like seeding this idea that Roke's going to go out into this faraway place with Leah and then suddenly something happened to him out in a faraway remote place to set up this sabotage. Like was Roke in on it from the beginning? I, I guess you think Roke is? Um, I have no idea yet. That's still like kind of, but kind it, but of a you, primary you, thought. If you had I think to so. make a judgment call, you'd say he is. Yes, because it's Leah that comes up to him. I guess I, I agree with you, but I guess my counterpoint is is that Antonia kills Leah, right? Yeah. So two fifty three Reaper. Um, if you don't come out to play, and I just want to read this. Regardless. No, 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 no. But hear hear me out. Okay. Roke never really expressed interest in Leah until that night. Anyway. Well, so as he so said, if she was kind of the pawn to begin with in their plan. I, yeah. Okay. I, I see I see where you're going. I just yep I see it. Yeah. Also yeah she is she is kind of like lower. So I I definitely get that in terms of the like class scale and where that where that stands. That that makes sense to me. But I feel like it also yanks the heart out of this moment to assume that Roke doesn't like Leah. You know it does. Like then and also that Roke is betraying Darrow. Woof. There's in, a lot of Darrow in that situation. <laughs> In that situation, like if that's true, then there's so much betrayal going on. Not, not like being a leader and having your entire house try to kill you, right? Like Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, but, but I found it interesting that that was never even a consideration by Darrow going forward within within this chapter. I don't know about beyond that. Well, yeah, it's, it's because they've had this like brotherly love between the three of them, right? Which I've, I've talked about a lot, like liking their kind of. Right, but so so does he and Cassius. Cassius. Yeah, I, I'm saying Rope, Cassius, and Darrow all have I know, this. I life. know, but but then oh, you're pointing to later. Okay, let's yeah. let's wrap let's wrap up this scene at the very least. Um, yep. So because it just this entire thing kills me. You know, I don't come out. God damn it, I don't come out. My life is more than my own. It is Eos, my family's. I cannot throw it away. Not for my pride. Not for Leah. Not to avoid the pain of losing another friend. Do they have Roke too? So Darrow's worried about Roke, of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's great to see this like very interesting change in Darrow in my head um, where he really actively cares about these people that he's grown to know outside of his immediate family, but also the growth from the vengeance mindset that Titus had into this mindset of I'm fighting for my entire people and my family. Right. Versus before he's like, well, I could blow up a bomb inside of a room and kill a bunch of people. And I could I could argue that it's tactical to have allies, but I, I think you're right in that it is emotional and he is growing fond of these people that he's seeing as uh, almost brothers. But the, the argument could still be made that like he needs these people in order to climb forward and, and get ahead. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily 
absent in his mind, but I think I think you're probably right. He's probably mostly thinking emotionally, at least in this situation. I agree. So, you know, he he basically stays in the trap. He eventually leaves the trap. After after like sunrise, right? Yep, he waits. They don't find Rogue's body. Severo comes back. Cassius comes back. Oh, know, they with Diana. Like the the um the proctors made sure to leave Leah's body there so we would know that she's actually dead. Which to me is I think it I think it, it's interesting, but do you think it's a a sign of or an act of compassion, of intimidation, of cruelty, of in uh, in in my head, like it, it could be, it could be seen in so many different ways. Agreed, agreed. What what do you think it is? I think it was mostly done in light compassion. The fact that that her body was left there means that she he can keep his mind focused on other things other than trying to find her. So what I think is far more cynical. I like your idea, considering I came in less cynical on the whole front end of this with like Roken Leah and you're you're more cynical. Oh, I like uh, trust like believe me, I, I believe there's some cynicism to it. And I think there's probably multiple reasons. I think, but I think the primary reason was that. I but think the continue. proctors were like, We're gonna let her die so Darrow knows that it's not safe to come out. Mm, like it's I don't know about that. Because uh, the, the medbots come down. Right. So they tried to save her. Well, but they don't carry her away. So as to confirm that like right. it's not but all, safe. Like most of the other dead bodies are carried away is what I got out of this. Regardless of if they were like mortally wounded but still alive or if they were dead, the bodies are carried away. I agree with you and that's where I say they're reiterating that it wasn't safe. Right. Like a part of a I part think- of the reason that like emergency medicine didn't intervene and potentially save Leah on the whole is because they thought that Darrow was more important. Okay. I I think we're looking at it not necessarily differently, but in sort of different lights. Yes, I agree. It was a warning, mm-hmm. but I think it was also like he knows how the medbots work, and it seems like they actively changed the way they operated those medbots in order to tell him something. And I think that something was that this is something you don't have to waste resources on finding Leah, mm-hmm. and maybe. Digging in a little bit deeper. Hey, Leah's body's here. Rokes isn't. Maybe put some resources towards that. That's maybe a little bit more extrapolation than can easily be made and reliably be made from the information that's given. But could be. It, it seems to be how he's acting going forward. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. I, I I like that. I mean, I I like I like your thought there. I think it's interesting that we can approach this from uh, from different lenses too, and we'll uh, we'll see how it develops. I I think. The interesting part about this is that a decent amount of the society, regardless how far you get into the story, is left ambiguous enough where there's space, you know? Right. So, like, this doesn't have the legacy that, for instance, a series like The Dark Tower has where people have torn it apart and thrown it back together again to, you know, analyze it to death. But what I I think is interesting here, you know, you've no, like, metatextual analysis. There's a lot that the society is trying to be, you know, to prove survival of the fittest. And it it could be either explanation within reason. And I think we'll see a decent development of answers going forward. And part of the reason that I feel confident in talking back right now is I don't feel like it exposes anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so right. we move forward. Severo and 
Cassius return. Severo wasn't able to steal the thing from him. Um, they, they return with all of Diana. They talk about House Leah and they can't find Roke. So Severo leaves in search of Roke. What a surprise. It looks like the goblin disagrees. Speak up if you've got something in your craw, pygmy. And uh, yeah. Anyway, they, they kind of have a back and forth there. All things considered, though, it's just, you know, it's it's just more of the same. It's more of the brutality. It's more contemplation. It's them talking through what Severo is going to do. Severo thinks that it's worth searching for a rogue. Cassius thinks that it might be a trap. You know, it's it's interesting. I think it feeds into yeah. your theory. It does. And um, man, it's hard to make a decision off that. Like, obviously, I, I brought that up, but I don't wholeheartedly believe it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I know that's a po- like, I see that possibility. And it makes sense. The fact that it was a sudden change in heart from from Roke towards Leah. And it, w- it was it was a conversation. Anyway, like, there, there's so many possibilities of how this could go down, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. I think the uh, thing to consider here as well is th- there are lots of different angles to approach this with. And I think Severo is sort of a lens of honesty on the whole thing because he mm-hmm. really doesn't care about what people say. You know, he even says like piss and lies. Yeah, you know, he dismisses, dismisses what, you know, Cassius is saying. Um, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that, that like he truly doesn't believe the shit that comes out of most people's mouths and he'd rather prove it himself which is why Severo goes out to try to find him. Because regardless, he thinks that saving Rogue's life is worth it. Which I think also says a lot about Severo that we also haven't seen. I think you're right. Um, Do you think that's naive, though? I don't. The only reason I don't think it's necessarily naive is because most people don't have or are not willing to put forth the effort that Severo is willing to put forth in things. The reason I say that is he literally lived on his own for the first part of this and was wandering, you know, the hills like a wolf. I don't feel like it's naive for him him baiting in the bushes yeah right <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, I but I, I think for that exact reason for Severo to say something like this is more of a brutal honesty or brutal truth less of naivete um uh, to not like give give up for another search i think and it's very quickly revealed otherwise that cassius has other plans for tonight for darrow and so does not want darrow and him to go out and do things and search yeah um in the immediate sense you know so if I just if I just go back a little bit, kind of bringing it back up, why would Leah be the one to lure Darrow out? I don't think that that's why it can't be Roke in my head is because Roke wouldn't really that that's why I think it could be. Hmm. I feel like Roke, they'd all have to kind of be in on it. But Leah and like in, in a situation where Roke is innocent. What's Roke? How get does it out come? It? What's Roke get out of it? Uh, in an ion sword. That's it. And a better chance at winning. Yeah, but you can win without being. And biased. a chance at being leader. But he doesn't have any bars right now. Like he's he's not even in contest. I I feel like that kind of goes against Roke's character, right? Okay, that's fair. That's a good like, point. It, I I see. I see. Where no, Roke had, Roke had a Roke had a few. I thought Roke had a few bars. He the only bars that he had weren't negative bars because his test scores were high. He didn't like earn anything. Okay. He may have uh, like objectively earned a couple here and there from other duties. Yeah, you mean total well, five. We, we didn't really he- we didn't really hear about anybody else earning bars either, though, right? No, we we did hear about Cassius. We did hear about Antonia. We did hear about Titus earning bars variously. We also heard that a couple of people but started. I would assume other bars. people also earned bars throughout it. Could for yes. accolades. So like. It, it was never explicitly said that he had earned bars, but it also was never explicitly said that he didn't. For, for the exact reason that you're citing, 
I think it would be cheap for Roke to try to like intercut in. I don't think being cheap is below. I'm saying cheap Gold. from a writer's perspective because there's okay. no there's no like all right all right all right, all right. there's there's no backing that way. But ne- you're right; it's not cheap from a golden perspective. So it could it could happen. Like I'm I'm just trying to figure out how a situation comes about where do you think it was just like dumb luck that Roke decided to like ask somebody who's on the like planned opposition on a date out into the woods well she's not on the planned opposition she's not like Do you th- all right so how does she come about being the one to go drag him out into a trap she's not intentionally dragging him out into a trap here pj i think she is oh i don't think so at all i think this is antonia manipulating the entire thing which is the one part of the situation that we haven't talked about that much okay is- i hadn't considered i i hadn't considered that antonia is an awful manipulative she's no, 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 a no, no, but okay bitch. so like- so how does so she has to choreograph a situation where Roke falls into a ravine and Leah knows to go get Darrow and then sits and wait while Darrow follows her back to the ravine. Like that seems so much more difficult than just having Leah on her side from the get-go. All right. So Roke is a romantic, right? Here's here's how I pictured this all setting up, right? Roke is a romantic, says, Leah, meet me here at this time. Antonia taking advantage of the situation, goes, pushes him off the cliff into a ravine or what have you. We don't really know because Roke is missing. Anyway, right. Uh, so pushes him off. Leah at some point finds him or hears him screaming or something and says that he needs help. Leah's sort of like hapless to a certain degree. So I, I don't... I disagree. I think that I think that Leah finding him out in the middle of the woods... Presumably a pretty far ride because they had to go like they they had to like run. They had to they had a significant distance go. So for her to just find him is pretty dumb luck if she wasn't already there. Right. Yeah, I, I, I definitely I hear you. I don't think it's dumb luck. I think it's a cleverly set trap by a gold who understands how to manipulate the situation, which I think is Antonia. I think Antonia has been painted to do that the whole time. And I don't, I, I see where you're coming from that you're saying that you think that Roke set it up through Antonia. No, no, no. I I don't necessarily think that Roke set it up, but I do think that Leah is not an innocent bystander in this. No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm steadfast on Leah being an innocent bystander because she would never, she hates Antonia for all intents and purposes. Like there's, there's no reason to like If Antonia promises her some form of like leadership or a higher level of respect within the, the house, if they get rid of Darrow, that's pretty good motivation to go along with her. Even if it's just her being used as a pawn and getting murdered later on. I think that Leah in your definition is easy to turn, but she would run any turnover with Roke in that way. But I, I, I just, it's tough to call. I feel like if we were talking about Cassius, which we literally see the comparison on the next page, that is <laughs> direct. And Cassius would a hundred percent do something like that, which he literally does. Ah, yeah. It's so I have a conspiracy theorist brain, man. Like I'm going to bring up these connections. I understand. And I really, like, I really don't think it makes sense for them to both just be kind of there. But if, it, and if Antonia acting on on like circumstance, if everything is because a conspiracy, it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say if everything is a conspiracy, then nothing is conspiracy. 
So I, I feel like that would, from a story perspective, mm. that would underhand everything, right? If everything is just incredibly intricate, short-term plot plans that we can't necessarily see, it would start to feel like a story of cheats, one after another after another. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. It's it's okay. I, I, I like I like where you're coming from. I just think that like you couldn't get away with so many twists in 40 pages. <laughs> like you can only get away with but, so much, but, and he gets away with three big ones. Alright, so here here's where I'm coming from. We have like four thousand pages to like resolve things that have happened. Yeah. Like and more, because I know he's working on another book. Like, this seems like something that we're not going to know for a while. Okay. All right. I will. And I'll take that answer. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're. Let's move on to Cassius. That's, that's, that's a good, that's a good flip <laughs> to, uh, to cut out that segment with. Now it's perfect. You made editing so much easier. So, our boy, Cassius. Our boy. <laughs> the, the title of the chapter is Apologies. We get the trap, the apologies, and the betrayal. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the second time that our boy Darrow has been let out on a trap. He and seems to know right away, though. He does catch this one a lot sooner, of course. But it's it, but intentionally does nothing to stop it. Which I, I think is interesting. Which I think it, yeah. it's interesting, but I think it's also kind of the right move. Yeah. Kind of the, kind of the honorable move, weirdly. For Cassius to take him out in the woods... For him to not stop him and say like, "Hey, this is a trap, isn't it?" Oh, for Darrow, when he first thought about okay. it. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Gotcha. I was like, Cassius is 100 percent not doing not, the honorable thing. No, 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 no. I mean, Darrow's decision to like not say anything about what he knows is happening, right? Because it's still his friend. Yeah, there's there's a big conflict here. Obviously, friend plus Julian plus like what the institute made me do. It's it's a lot. I mean. We, we do also get the picture of Julian and the family rivalry here as well, which I think is important because Julian should have never made it to the Institute. Under no other circumstances would he have made it if not basically being hand-selected by the Arch-Governor to make it, which was an effort to just kill a Bologna, basically, yeah. because they picked an Pretty inferior much. one. Yeah, so that's that's him that leads into him telling him that it's the arch governor's son, which I didn't realize wasn't well known. Like when I when I first read this, I I hadn't made the connection that like Jerry was the only one that knew that the arch governor's mm-hmm. son was the jackal. Right. To everyone else, he was just kind of the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Well, no one else really does know. It, it's not until now that we know that anyone else drew the connection, right? Mm-hmm. And the other part of information that's passed on here is that he's been hidden. the The boogeyman, the jackal, has been hidden as has Cassius to some degree from the opposite family for likely these reasons. Right. So the whole like dueling family dynamic is very interesting. It really is. It's And do you think that, I mean, obviously Cassius flinches explicitly. He flinches is the entire paragraph after he's told that it, it's the arch governor's son. But do you think it really makes Cassius, rethink his decision to fight Darrow here? Um, No, and I think that's exemplified in the line uh, on 261 where he says, 
It's how you killed him. And we came as princes and the school is supposed to teach us to become beasts. But you came a beast. And I feel like that is the the thing that solidifies kind of the differences between the two of them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can agree with that. But I still think I still think that sort of like pointing out that strings are being pulled here could make him hesitate and rethink things. Obviously he flinched, which can be seen as a hesitation, but not necessarily a change of thought. Um, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, where like strings are being pulled. It could be a deep fake. There are any number of things that could be argued. A deep fake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. in yeah. recent popular culture, deep fake was made a, a prime joke of a, of a series. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, the the whole thing, I, I think the point that you're making is also the point that Darrow's making, right? Like Darrow's saying, Darrow, like Cassius is kind of alluding to there being like higher cards at play. And Darrow's also doubling in on that theory and saying that like we can beat him together. So I, I think I think that's that's where the problem is, is Cassius is trying to imply that there are higher cards at play, but is really only acting on the base revenge feeling and i i don't i don't think he's really acting out of like respect for his family i think he's really just upset that somebody killed his brother and wants to exact revenge on them and is trying to justify it in as noble a way as he can and isn't really interested in actually having reason to back it up but wants to feel more justified than straight revenge. Yeah, I, I think he has reason to back it up already. Like, and the reason is, like, gold culture duels at insults. Like, they'll duel to the death at an insult. And to kill someone's brother is, like, that's so far beyond an insult, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's made mention of... But very he was, in, he was in the same situation, though. Yeah, and if the other brother came to him... And has he, he has to know that, like, you're right. Like it's it's trying to say like put yourself in my shoes and think about the person that you killed mm-hmm. as Julian to somebody else and how would they feel? And that's kind of a couple jumps too much to really describe. Right. I think. Right. Especially because in in the picture from Cassius's perspective, Darrow's entire family is dead, and so there's there's no one really for him to live for. There's he has no like. There's no one that can challenge his life right, except for to challenge him directly, which also makes sense because he's red inside of a gold society. But right, <laughs> you know, he's he's not standing so much for a house united so much as he has is a house of his own. Copyright trademark. Writing that down for later. That was good. Um, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> but I, I do. I, that was another to me. The but you came as a beast is another like goose flesh moment in my head. It's just like, it's, it's tough. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of shouting here that reminds me kind of of the naivete of like Luke Skywalker to some degree from Cassius, you know, the, uh, Dara says, also, I, and what were you when you ripped apart Titus? I was not like you. I let you kill him Cassius. So the house wouldn't remember that a dozen boys took a good long piss on your face. So don't treat me as though I'm some monster. So what I was just going to say leads right into that. You are, he sneers. Oh, shut your goddamn gob and let's get on, or let's just cut to it. Hypocrite. But goddamn isn't a phrase that's been used before in this book. Has it? Objection. Yes, it has. When? 
I don't have the digital text, but I can swear to you that it has been previously. I thought it was strictly gory damn or bloody damn. So, yes, there are moments, but goddamn has been used at least a couple of times. I believe, okay. like, it struck Severo me has as. It, I believe. You're saying it, it's striking you as like a low color showing. No, 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 no. It's striking me as out of place and oh. out of color because it's not. It's not red speak and it's not gold speak. Maybe it's just straight middle speak. I I think, but I think it kind of is. I I think it's more of like a just get to the point kind of thing. I do see where you're coming from. Um, he could say Gory Dan, and maybe he should have, but I'll uh I'll give it a pass. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, the duel is not long. The duel is not long. It's literally a paragraph, and he gets stabbed in the stomach. You know, as as only as I only feel horrible tightness as alien metal slides into my body and warmth gushes out. I forget to breathe, then I gasp. The fact that the ion blade is off, yeah, so it doesn't cauterize. Yep, he's letting him bleed out. Fucking brutal, too. Yep, the man who called him brother. Now you understand why I was pointing out all the brotherly love moments. Mm-hmm. Just it's so it's so crazy. It's so bad. It hurts so badly. Uh, please let Rook be good. Anyway, um, <laughs> <clears throat> and on two sixty two, the final page of this chapter, he's kind of calling out for life at the very end. You know, nothing is worth this. Nothing. Let me be a slave again. Let me see EO. Let me die. Just not this. Yeah, brutal. It's. My blood goes out, with it go dancer's hopes, my father's uh, sacrifice, Eo's dream. Oh, yeah. Also. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oof. <laughs> oof is a way of putting it. <laughs> so that is the breakdown. We're going to move into predictions next. So any favorite moments from this week's reading? That that f- that conversation and like the, the end, the, that ending fight with Cassius. Yeah. Was... Really beautifully written. Like uh, the the descriptors of <laughs> his blood being like let out and equating that with the emotions and feelings and memories and hopes of all the people that have brought him to this moment. Yeah, in, um, the, in the fight of a straight blade versus a curved blade. Yeah. Was he? Wait, 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 wait. Was he using his? Uh, no, he wasn't. He explicitly didn't use it he he wanted to reach for it at one point but couldn't because he knew that it would be cut through right it would be cut through i feel like he could have won with it anyway maybe i don't know too much of a fool to figure it um, out the is too fast it's it is hard to hard to think i don't know what to expect here we'll, we'll talk about that in a second is he we'll talk about dead that in a second we'll yeah. get we'll get okay. there we'll get there so um we we talked about the betrayals at length, so we'll skip that one. What's your favorite of the brotherly moments, though? Now that the brotherhood has seemingly ended between Rogue Cassius and Darrow, who's oh. your favorite of their? Like, it doesn't need to be all three of them. Halfway through that conversation, I had an answer, and then you mentioned the people, and I was gonna say uh, the conversation, like the the real kind of only time where Darrow has been super super open or wanted to be super open, rather. Of his conversation with Severo. Okay. Um, but I don't, I, if we're just talking about the three of them. Um, it doesn't need to be the three of them. I was trying to use the three of them as an example. So like, 
It could be Cassius and Darrow. It could be Roke and Darrow. I like your Severo and Darrow answer. I just want to hear the brotherly moment that's been betrayed, like of the betrayals. Um, I, I think really one of the strongest ones was the conversation where Roke was being real kind of open-hearted about his affection towards Leah and Darrow realizing like what level of maturity we're really dealing with here. Yeah. And whether or not it was that significant in Darrow's mind, it was kind of an eye-opening moment for me and re kind of focusing what what age we're dealing with here. Right. I definitely how young how young these kids are. I still am at odds with myself about whether or not it was a genuine conversation from Roke's point of view. And I know we had an extensive conversation about that. <laughs> but regardless, taking it at face value, it was a very powerful conversation. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that front. Um, it's not my favorite. My favorite moment of the brotherly love between the brothers in total is the... Uh, Cassius and Darrow running towards the banquet table from last chapter, two chapters ago, uh, when they're running together towards the river to capture the food right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, that, that still sticks out in my head. It's just a great moment where they're like, fighting everyone off, like right, right when they start at the institute, and yeah, right when they, right when they begin. Mm-hmm. I, I'd agree with that. I was trying to go by like this. Oh yeah, yeah. Section. I guess I guess this is like the end <laughs> of that relationship to some degree from our perspective it right is. now. Yeah. Unless like somehow they come out of it. So, you know, who if anyone is going to save Darrow? Where do we go from here? Severo. Severo? Severo. Okay. I think Severo has kind of proven himself as kind of the master of stealth and the master of being unseen and stalking and kind of being in the right place at the right time. I think he kind of understands the precarious situation without knowing the details of it, but understanding the precarious situation that uh, that Darrow's in. I would bet if he saw Darrow and Cassius riding somewhere, he would take the opportunity to follow. Sure. Which we know he was out searching the ditches. Right. Okay. Um, Other thoughts. But we don't know if he was still out there at that point. Because the 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 excuse was Severo found Roke, right? Yeah. Yep. Right. So maybe Severo was back, or maybe maybe he was somewhere around. I I think I think Severo comes into play next. Sure. Sure. That's interesting. I I like your perspective on Severo there. So you'd made mention earlier of the Jackal being an enemy of both Cassius and Darrow. What do you see happening here? going into kind of the end of the book like we've we've got like a little bit over 100 pages left at this point i guess that depends on does darrow survive i assume he does especially like big letters next page reaper without turning a page part four reaper um like i i assume he doesn't actually die but cassius is clearly somebody who acts not only on impulse, but on the honor of his family above everything else. And seems to kind of forgo intelligence and like thinking things through a little bit in those scenarios. Yeah, making an um, intelligent decision as it relates to most things. So I think given the first opportunity, he goes and tries to challenge the jackal. The jackal chops his head off or something wow. unceremoniously. Yeah. And 
Darrow, assuming he survives, figures out a way to, I don't know, take him down. Okay, so that kind of answers the uh, the, the where does the story go from here question. Um, you know, in general. Oh, I I, I think th- I think the jackal is the center point of the story from here on out. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's valid. Um, any other predictions for next week? Uh, Antonia is gonna be de facto leader at this point. You think? Not Cassius? No. Okay. No, I think Antonia has more of a following, more drive to take leadership. I think Cassius. So, real, real quick, if, if if unopposed, Cassius would take the leadership, but I don't think Cassius has the the following to oppose somebody else's. Uh, so. Before you finish the thought, because I, the the text makes you a fool in this regard only, um, is that they say when when Cassius and Severo get back before the betrayal, um, they say that Antonia, Cassandra, and Vixus ran off, so they did not they did not oh, report good back. point. Okay, so mm-hmm. predictions for next week. I mean, we did we did discuss assuming Darrow gets kind of saved. I think Severo is the one to do it. Okay. I still have a bad feeling about Roke. Gotcha. I think I think Severo and his howlers are going to be basically the core of House Mars as far as an organized situation goes. You're saying for like for Darrow. For Darrow. Gotcha. And if Antonia finds out that Darrow was defeated by Cassius and comes back and like takes House Mars, I could see Darrow and the Howlers essentially starting a new house. Sure. For themselves. Yeah, why not? Why not? Most like most importantly, I think Daryl gets saved by Severo, and I think the Jackal is the primary focus of the rest of the book. Sure. Okay. Yeah, we got a we got a hundred pages. So Yeah. Alright. So with that, we are on to what we're doing next week. Next week we read until chapter thirty nine. This will be the first part of so, Reborn. So I've had confusion based on our own conversations. Until chapter 39, do you mean we stop at the beginning of 39 or do we read through 39? You are going to read up until not through. Okay. So we stop once we see the numbers 39. Yes. Do not read below the numbers 39. Okay. Cool. Sounds good. Yep. So for us in our copy, in the hardcover copy, that's 263 to 329. About a 70-ish plus page spread. So, yeah. All right. Cool. That's uh, that's the game plan for next week. It's riveting. It's going to set up our shocking conclusion. This is going to be the first half of Reborn. I'm super excited to get through this. And also getting through this book and moving into the larger series is just... I, I'm so stoked. <laughs> Me too. Because, uh, yeah. Yeah, don't want to give anything away. So, uh, with that, thank you for listening to Words and Whiskey. We hope you've built up a tolerance to us. Subscribe to us on your preferred platform like Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever else you use. And check us out at our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We filled our top shelf with our favorite cocktail recipes as well as other important information for you. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. All those links and more can be found in our show notes. A five-star rating on the platform of your choosing goes a long way to springing us up on them leaderboards and getting us noticed. We're just two dudes helping encourage people to read and get out of their comfort zone while thinking critically about literature.
Thanks for listening, and we bloody Dan better see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.